welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. Joe, I want to introduce you to our listeners. Joe Ehrman was an All-American football player for Syracuse University, where he also lettered in lacrosse. He went on to a Pro Bowl career for 13 seasons with the Baltimore Colts. Since retiring, he's coached high school football at Gilman School, Baltimore. This led to a Parade Magazine cover story that called Joe the most important coach in America because of his work that transformed the culture of sports. Joe is also well-known as the subject of a New York Times bestseller, Season of Life, by Jeffrey Marks, a really fantastic book. And Joe recently wrote his own book, Inside Out Coaching, which is uh, you know, just filled with incredible lessons. Joe founded Coach for America to inform, inspire, initiate individual, individual community and societal change that empowers men and women to be their very best. Joe and his wife, Paula, co-founded The Door, a community-based organization addressing issues of poverty, systemic racism, and social justice. He also started an organization called Building Men and Women for Others, which addresses issues of masculinity and femininity. Uh, Joe and Paula have four children, uh, some uh, very accomplished athletes, so he's also a uh, a sports parent. And... um, Really proud to say Joe is a member of PCA's National Advisory Board, um, and he's uh, helped us in many ways, appearing in videos and our online workshops and many other ways. And very excited that we will be giving Joe the Ronald L. Jensen Award for Lifetime Achievement, PCA's highest honor, at our next National Youth Sports Awards dinner uh, on April 12, 2014. Joe, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us today. Oh, I'm honored to be with you and to be associated with PCA. So, yeah, thrilled to talk to the people. So um, I've got a lot of questions. I want to jump right into the the topic of the hour, and that's um, Jonathan Martin, Richie Incognito, uh, accusations of bullying, hazing, um, with the, on the Miami Dolphins. When I first heard you speak, I heard you talk about false masculinity and what what real masculinity is. And can you just give us a little context about this this particular issue uh, with the Miami Dolphins in the context of what what kids are told masculinity is all about? Well, I'll try. I think uh, when you look at that incident uh, with the Dolphins. Uh, those two players and really the team, uh, it's really about the culture of that team. Uh, that's a microcosm of what's going on in America. And wherever you have a, a hyper-masculinity, kind of a culture where masculinity is uh, defined by power, dominance, control, uh, I think you see all kinds of issues. This is where you see hazing, bullying, uh, homophobia, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, gender violence and issues. Uh, and I think it, it stems from this fact, uh, Jim. I think every boy in America, by the time he's six, seven years old, he's already experienced the trauma of being told to be a man. And for every young boy, it's almost always in the context of stop acting that way. Stop with the tears. Stop with the emotions. Don't be a sissy, some kind of girl. Be a man. And boys at a very early age are taught to repress their emotions, 
uh, uh, their feelings uh, and thinking that to have them is somehow a sign of masculine uh, uh, weakness. So boys uh, start to conform uh, to this culture. So then you start to identify uh, who fits in that little box of masculinity, uh, the cultural construct. It's called be a man box. And then you figure out boys start policing each other uh, of who's in that box and who's out. So you've got all kinds of policing that begins on the playground of other boys telling other boys uh, to stop with their own uh, emotional behavior. And then when boys don't function from the stereotype, they either have some kind of feminine labeling or some kind of, uh, of uh, homosexual labeling. Uh, those labels are designed to keep boys silent, to keep them in the box. And when you're not allowed to understand and connect to your own feelings and emotions, you'll never understand the feelings and emotions of another human being. So I think to have it a 30-year-old adult man, a bullying, having the lack of empathy, the lack of human connection to understand uh, how he was making that person feel, to have other teammates in that locker room uh, that knew what was going on, that lacked the moral courage, the moral clarity uh, to speak up at that. And I think what you have is you have a player that somehow didn't fit the construct defined by Richie Incognito and some other uh, uh, dolphins and, and throughout this culture of a man that didn't fit that box and therefore he was bullied, he was hazed, caused all kinds of names. Uh, I think it's a problem uh, not just in the NFL. It's really part of the American culture and something that we all need to uh, struggle against. In your uh, really fantastic remarks on CNN yesterday, um, you you said that Jonathan Martin uh, refused to stay in the be a, be a man box. He went outside that box. Why is that, do you think, so threatening to other hyper-masculine males? Uh, because I think hyper-masculinity is really a sign of tremendous insecurity. So when you don't understand who you are, when you don't feel good about who and what you are, you have to project uh, all these different forms of power, dominance, and control. And I think when another man doesn't reflect that back, that insecurity uh, uh, turns into some kind of anger, some kind of rage. Uh, when boys don't know how to process, men don't know how to process their own emotions, the only emotion they've ever been taught that's legitimate to express is anger. Uh, and that's what's come out. Men are in two states. They're either angry or they shut down uh, in an awful lot of emotional situations. You know, I um, I watched the uh, Stanford-Oregon football game last night. And uh, did you happen to see that game? I did not. Um, I, I'm really torn because I, I have a master's degree from both places. <laughs> um but um, what really struck me is that afterwards, you know, Jonathan Martin went to Stanford, and after the game, Shane Scove, who was in some ways the, the, the person who really saved the game for Stanford with his uh, fumble recovery, uh, you know, on the one-yard line, um, he came out with these nerdy glasses. And I, I just wondered if that was like a statement of support for Jonathan Martin, because he's been called a nerd and, you know, he's soft and all that stuff. And it, was really, um, it was really touching to see that. Well, I think, uh, boy, there's a guy that needs the support. Uh, I read the comments about, uh, from his teammates about his character, and he just seems to be a wonderful, warm, sensitive uh, uh, man. 
And somehow, you know, in this culture, we feel that to be warm and sensitive and empathic and kind is somehow mutually exclusive for being tough, aggressive, and totally committed in that athletic arena. Uh, Those things aren't exclusive. They go hand in hand. And I think uh, I think Martin's uh, you know performance, first round draft choice, great player. I think he just didn't fit that culture, and uh, hopefully that culture is about to change. This is why it's so important, though. Uh, you know the work that the PCA does. It has to be about nurturing uh, the souls and the and the hearts of young boys. It has to be about social emotional uh, makeup. Uh, what you're doing there, at PCA, is standing against the get in the gap against this win-at-all-cost-minded kind of mentality, which allows players to go through the ranks without ever being properly confronted or coached because coaches are just looking at performance rather than uh, trying to develop uh, holistic, healthy uh, men and women. Yeah, you made you made this really uh, powerful point about separating performance from the person, that um, if you want to get if you want to help people get to be the best they can be, you have to look at the person, not just their performance. That just seems really well. That performance, like a deep idea from the person. Yeah, but well, we got to, you know, we're coaching people. We're not coaching athletes or athletic ability. We're trying to make the world a better place, and it's really about coaching the hearts of young people. And I think, particularly for boys, uh, sports ought to be a tool to help them uh, um, not only develop the moral courage and the clarity. Uh, uh, to self-define and to figure out what they're going to stand for, who they're going to stand with, and what they're going to stand against. But it has to be a place that affirms all of those emotions that make us human beings. And sports brings out all of those affirmations. Uh, if we can validate them on the athletic arena, we should we ought to be able to validate them in other places. I can't remember who said this, but somebody said uh, sports is life with the volume turned up. Um, it, it really is the the perfect place to, as you know, our tagline: develop better athletes, better people. Let me let me um, let me talk to you about moral courage. Um, where did you first come across the concept of moral courage? And, and let me just say, it seems like when people talk about courage in this society, in our culture, it's about you know the the GM allegedly telling Jonathan Martin when he complained about his treatment, you know you you know punch him in the nose. That courage is is a physical thing, and yet I think it's much harder to show moral moral courage than it is to show physical courage. Where, where did you first? Uh, realized that moral courage was such a crucial thing? Well, you know, I had the fortune that I'm old enough to have grown up, grown up during the uh, civil rights and have, uh, you know, have studied people like Dr. Martin Luther King and uh, Gandhi and to see the incredible moral courage of so many people that spoke out uh, in the midst of injustices in this country and in India. So moral courage is, uh, you know, it. it it's just critical to be developed, but it can only be developed based on some kind of moral ethical. It can only be developed when you have uh, the freedom, the self-assurance, the conviction to be able to speak uh, against the status quo. So I think, uh, you know, in sports, uh, as you said, uh, we spend so much time uh, making all this to do about physical courage. But the moral courage to speak out against, to talk about accepting uh, all people with dignity, status, uh, uh, inherent value, uh, that takes tremendous courage, and that's what we ought to be coaching and developing in young people. 
You know, you um, you know when you when you bring in moral courage, and you you use that term in your CNN interview, and I've read uh, I probably haven't read everything written about this this incident, but I've read a lot, and I. The closest it came was uh, a guy named Brian Henry who writes on Grantland.com, and he talked about moral courage without using the term. But um, when you introduce the concept of moral courage, then um, the whole situation is kind of turned. It's like those big, strong football players who were tough but didn't do anything, lacked moral courage, and Jonathan Martin, who, you know, oh, he's soft, he should have handled this like a man, actually has moral courage. It just kind of turns, when you, when you think about moral courage, it kind of turns things upside down. Or right, right side up, maybe. Yeah, I think right side up is probably uh, the better expression there. But, yeah, um, uh, I totally agree. But, again, you have to have a, a, a moral ethical foundation from which to speak of. So here's a guy that uh, spoke out, and um, I think you're going to see more and more uh, players starting to uh, step up and support him, but did not do it at the moment. And the problem is on that playground when we're six, seven years old, boy, when that bullying takes place, that's when many of us learn to be bystanders. We're too insecure about our own masculinity, about our own position, our own place on that playground. We allow that, and uh, it's the bystanders. So every time there's a victim and a perpetrator, uh, boy, it's the bystanders that they'd ever speak out. So when you look at the crisis of uh, rape in high school across this country, colleges, uh, binge drinking the party, uh, most of these things would be eradicated if it just one or two people had the clarity and the courage to just speak out and say this is wrong. And I think that needs to be part of uh, every coach's, uh, whatever their transformative purpose statement is. But I think honoring and modeling and teaching and coaching uh, courage, uh, moral courage and conviction is a critical piece of that. What are the three elements, I know you've talked about the three elements of false masculinity, and then what constitutes real masculinity in your view? Well, there are three fundamental lies in this culture. Now, when I talk about culture, I'm talking about the messages that come from uh, the media, the you know, the music industry, movies, Madison Ave. So the first lie every boy in America learns by the time they're seven, eight years old, and that is as a culture we associate masculinity with issues of athletic ability. Uh, for those boys that have athletic interests that can catch it down and out or hit the hanging curve, those boys are elevated on the playground. They're seen as having a little more value, a little more worth. They're even ascribed a little more masculinity uh, than the other boys on that playground based on the first lie. And what I want to say is athletic ability doesn't have a single thing to do with being a man. But you think about all those boys on the playground, Jim, uh, they don't just want to play sports. They want to do computers or they want to become writers or music or dance, drama, debate. They ought to have the freedom to be whoever they are. But in this culture... Those boys are pushed against the peripheral of the playground and impregnated with this idea. They don't have what it takes to be a man. Second lie every boy in America learns by the time they're in junior high school, and that is we associate masculinity in many parts of America with issues of sexual conquest. What's it mean to be a young man? It means you have the capacity to use young girls to either validate some kind of masculine insecurity or to gratify some kind of physical need. 
Then later on, you get the third lie in this culture, and that is that we associate uh, masculinity and manhood with economic success, as though you can measure what a man is based on his job, title, position, power, the amount of possessions someone has accumulated. Now, I could take those three lies and tie them into just about every social problem in this country. And I don't care whether it's boys with guns, girls with babies, immorality in boardrooms, or the beatdown women take in this country. And one, two, or all three of those lies, they're embedded in just about every advertisement that's directed toward men during sports events. And there's a transmission of values coming out of the sports nexus with all of its marketing and advertising that's not healthy for the development of boys into some kind of authentic masculinity. So what I do as, as I redefine it, and I know this from being in pastoral ministry for over 30 years, in my faith tradition, part of my job is to sit on the deathbed of dying people and help prepare them for the next stage of life. And here's what I know about true about me, and I know for every single person listening to this uh, podcast, if you were on your deathbed today, knowing that you were going to die tomorrow, and you wanted to measure what kind of man, what kind of woman you were, what kind of success you had in life, it'd come down to two things. The first is this. On that deathbed, you recognize all of life is about relationships. It's about the capacity to love and to be loved. The questions you ask at the end of your life are all relational questions. What kind of husband, what kind of wife, what kind of mother, what kind of father, what kind of son, what kind of daughter, co-laborer, citizen? They're all questions of relationships. And then the second thing, and again, if you were on your deathbed about to die tomorrow, define what kind of man, woman, success, it'd come down to this. At the end of your life, you want to be able to look back over and know that you made a difference in your lifetime. All of us want to leave some kind of legacy, some kind of mark, some kind of imprint that we were here and we made a difference. So to me, what does it mean to be a man? It means we're relationally centered. We know how to love and to be loved. We know how to enter into meaningful relationships, how to sustain community. The second thing is it's learning how to commit to a cause, that all of us have a responsibility to put our stake in the game and uh, pronounce the difference we're going to make and, and pick that arena. So masculinity is relationships, commitment to a cause. Same thing as femininity. And the beauty of that, Jim, is the fact that, you know, when you think about a team, what's a team? A team is nothing more than a set of relationships for cause. It's all about relational connectivity and commitment. It's the ideal place to help boys become men and girls become women. Yeah, Joe, uh, totally. That's that's beautiful. Um, you know, I, I remember going to a Stanford women's basketball game, and and one of their one of their starters was wearing a mask. She had a broken nose, and it really uh, struck me how much kids love sports and how much they want to do well, that she was playing with a broken nose. And what I, what I got from that was um, kids will do almost anything to, to do well in sports. And as coaches, all we ask them to do is win. We don't ask them to be a better person. If we did, they would. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah, I think the irreducible minimum for every human being is you want to be loved, you want to be loved, and you want to belong. Coaches have this incredible capacity to teach kids they are loved, they are respected, 
they have value and worth beyond their wildest expectation, and also that they can belong, uh, they can contribute, they have something to offer uh, uh, this world. So it, uh, I very much agree with your statement. You you were abused, um, and you talk about that very, uh, very frankly and very directly. Um, I think a lot of people, when they're abused, they feel shame, and they want to hide it. How did you overcome the shame of of what happened to you, so that you could actually be part of helping other people deal with their issues? Well, you know, uh, it took me 47 years, Jim, in order to uh, to have the courage to address it. Most men, on average, don't self-report until at least five years after the trauma. It's why these statute of limitations have got to uh, grow. But, you know, that left me with this uh, tremendous sense. You know, as I said, every child wants to be loved. They want to belong. Shame is this concept that you are so deeply flawed. You are unworthy of of being loved and unworthy of belonging. So you hide this shame. Shame is the concept that somehow the very essence of you, somehow that is so deeply flawed. Not something you did. It's something that you are. Uh, Shame always grows in silence, secrecy, and self-judgment. So for 47 years, every day I would plug in uh, my shame, and I'd hide it, and I'd project all kinds of images. Uh, I didn't have someone uh, at that time in my life that I felt that I could go to, that I could share with. Um, So I feel like, you know, as a survivor myself, having finally come to grips with it, uh, I have a responsibility. There's over 20 million men that are sexually abused in this country. I know about depression. I know about relational difficulties, substance abuse. Uh, That's all part of my history. But I've learned one thing is uh, you can take your wounds and you can either ignore them and repress them, and if you do that, you're going to wound other people. A wounded boys become wounding men apart from some kind of healing intervention. Your other option in life is to go get the help, get your wounds healed, and then you become a wounded healer. So I have just learned that, and when I share my story, I let light and, and fresh air and breath into that shame, which is what kills it. It only grows, again, in silence and secrecy. So uh, I think every coach, boy, ought to build uh, relationships with their players. I know I do. I want to make sure that every kid on my team knows and understands that no matter what, they can come share to me whatever their deepest struggle, issue, temptation, or what they're dealing with. Uh, I was someone like that, but, uh, you know, finally got the help I needed, and now um, – I'm party making sure that never happens to another uh, young child athlete. You know, Joe, um, there's there's a difference, a distinction between service and social justice. And, um, you know, a lot of people in sports talk about service, you know, giving back to the community. You're one of the few people who really focuses in on social justice. Can you talk about what social justice means to you? Yeah, well, justice uh, justice has to do with three levels. Uh, there's an economic justice that we're all, you know, pretty familiar with, uh, just wages, uh, economic justice. The second is communal justice, that everybody is treated uh, with inherent value, worth, human potential, given uh, some kind of equality of opportunity. And the third has to do with uh, relational, uh, economic, 
and the third has to do with uh, societal justice, uh, organizing this in an appropriate way. So when you look at the history of sports in America, up until the last 10, 15 years ago, when we moved into this win-at-all-cost kind of mentality, sports have always been a metaphor for social change in America. When you talk about civil rights, when you talk about human rights, when you talk about women's rights, you think about the role that sports and athletes have played in bringing some of those issues into mainstream political consciousness. Uh, Jackie Robinson, uh, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, uh, Title IX, uh, Nelson Mandela, the international sports community put the pressure on South Africa to dismantle, dismantle apartheid. And then when prisoner Mandela becomes president, he used sports to reconcile a broken nation. So sports have always, every ethnic group that's ever been ghettoized, sports has created a pathway out. Immigrants that come to this country get integrated into uh, American society through sports. But somehow we've reduced it to this one at all costs, and we've lost the concept of creating a, a good citizen, of the tool that sports could be in creating a, a better and more fair and more just uh, society. So part of my, uh, my own passion is to reclaim that history and to continue to promote that. You know, um, I, I heard you uh, talk once. Uh, I, I was at a, a talk you gave, and somebody asked you about Michael Vick. This was at the time when um, you know, he was, uh, I think he was in prison at the time for his uh, abuse of, of dogs. Um, and you were very... Um, I don't know how to characterize it, but uh, almost gentle about Michael Vick, that and and forgiving maybe is the right word. Um, do you want to do you want to share about um, you know your feelings about Vick and you know the the horrible things he did and the need for a second chance for him? Well, I certainly condemn what he did. Uh, well, that's pretty scary, abusing dogs and whatever those issues are. Uh, but I, I I think you're referring to. I, I think my comment was. Uh, I think perhaps that he grew up in a culture, you know, kind of in a rural area where that was somehow acceptable. And I think he never made the conscious choice or had the clarity, again, that moral clarity, that that was uh, something wrong. And I think he was probably surprised by the end of it. So I think he needed to be punished, uh, and he certainly was that. But then I think he needed to be enlightened and, uh, you know, uh, redemption, I think, has to be uh, at the end of every uh, disciplinary path. So uh, what about Richie Incognito? Same for him? Oh, I think redemption has to be a part of his path. That's a sick, lonely, uh, uh, a sad person. I mean, he has a whole history there that uh, – uh, but, uh, yeah, I think redemption. I, I don't think he'll ever play in the NFL again. I'd be very surprised about that, but I certainly hope he uses this as a time to go get the help that he needs to even think about, to even try to justify uh, the language, the use, the uh, talking to another human being uh, that way. Uh, boy, that's some deep pathology in there that if he doesn't get addressed, is going to continue to blow up because he's going to continue to have these triggers that are going to come out kind of in issues of anger and rage. You know, you you said earlier that um, wounded boys become wounding men, and uh, it certainly isn't uh, uh, beyond the imagination that that, uh, Michael Vick, uh, Richie Incognito, a lot of people who are abusers, um, you know, back on that playground, they were 
they were abused in in ways that that led them to what they're doing now. Again, not to not to say they shouldn't be. Um, you know, they have to they have to face the consequences of what they did. But um, that I was just really struck uh, what you said about Michael Vitt, the thick that there's an opportunity for redemption and and uh, you know that's the other thing is I want to I want to say um, this is going off topic a little bit, but do you know the the book and the movie called Ender's Game? Yeah, I love your definition of uh, a team, a set of relationships uh, for a cause. And, um, you know, it, you know, I work in sports like you do, like all the time with lots and lots of people. And when, when you ask um, former athletes, former current coaches, uh, you know, like their best experience in sports, it usually comes down to a team experience where the team was really in sync and people supported each other, held each other accountable too, but just – you know that that experience of being on a team that really cares about each other and is working really hard to accomplish an important goal there's there's really not much much like it it's just fantastic well i think most uh, men most players will spend the rest of their uh, lifetime trying to ever recreate that kind of locker room environment uh, those moments when everyone is in sync uh, those are profoundly uh, spiritual moments uh, spirituality to me is about the quest for self-transcendence. It's when I move beyond my own preoccupation, my own agenda, to be connected to others. Boy, those are kind of sacred moments. And it's when you have that momentum, uh, when you have that flow, when you have that spiritual moment, uh, boy, that's, uh, I think you end up, uh, that's a high that you end up seeking the rest of your life. That's the thing most players miss and regret. It's all the relationships and the context of being on a team uh, committed to one goal, uh, one purpose, and you're sacrificing uh, self-sacrificial in the midst of doing that. That is the ultimate. It's one of the ultimate experiences, I think, of being a human being. Wow, that's 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 lovely. Um, last question, um, the NFL. Um, what, what do you see happening in the NFL? And, and you know, I was, I was thinking about this a while back that, you know, when when then Cassius Clay won the the heavyweight championship before he changed his name to Muhammad Ali, um, that was on the front page of the New York Times, not the sports page. It's on the front page of the New York Times, and boxing was, uh, you know, it was so big. And now they're still boxing, but. It's it's kind of put off to the side. Is that possible that the NFL football could could go that same uh, same route? It's not going to go away, but you know it could be off to the side. Well, I think uh, football, as we know it in America today, is drastically going to be changed. I sadly read in the paper this morning that uh, Joe Delamalier, uh, Tony Dorsett, uh, three other guys got diagnosed with uh, you know uh, CTE. CTE. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, today, and I think there's a glut. You know, I'm 64, and I think my era, I've watched the era before me, the John Unitas era, and, uh, boy, I've watched a number of those guys with Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, Parkinson's, Lou Gehrig's, and, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, football is going to change, and I think uh, I, I think we have to get to the bottom of this and relatively uh, quick about what is the connection between brain concussions, uh, traumatic brain injuries, and uh, these diseases. I think moms and dads are really going to be taking a second thought uh, about uh, contact sports, uh, all contact sports. I think it's going to heighten the need 
uh, for Positive Coaching Alliance to be in every community in this country because there has to be some kind of control. There has to be some kind of character conviction that's put into every coach, understanding why uh, the goals, the, the, the true goals of coaching, and teaching players that it's much more than just the game. Uh, also, America, uh, American football, yeah, I, I can just see, uh, I, th- I think it's in a real point of crisis right now, Jim. I know as a parent, uh, you know, and I had a boy that played in college, and I wasn't crazy about it then. And, uh, boy, if I was a parent today, and, and I and, and I did, I'd never let my boys play uh, football till they got to high school. Um, but I, I think you really need to think about this, and, uh, you know, I hope the research is done and there's some clear links that are done soon. You know, I, I, I grew up playing football and uh, in, started in middle school and high school. I was a 130-pound quarterback, um, and, I mean, I love football. And so I just, I mean, I just hope it can, uh, the the uh, the game can change so it's still exciting. It could still be exciting without uh, having having to level people. Joe, this has been fantastic. Any any um, last thing you'd like to say before we wrap this up? No, I just want to I want to thank you, and I want to thank you for what you've committed your life to, and the Positive Coaching Alliance. And uh, I'm very honored uh, to have been a board member. I'm uh, beyond uh, humbled. Uh, to be receiving an award, but uh, your work is just so critical. And uh, how long have you been doing this, Jim? 15 well, years, uh, PCA 10? is 15 years now. Yep. Yeah, 15 years, and it's never been more important nor more needed in this country than it is today, and it will be even needed more so tomorrow. So uh, I'm thrilled and honored to be associated with you uh, and your associations, and I think uh, – I think all of us with good moral conscience that want to help boys become men and girls become women, we need to all be involved. And uh, it's been an honor to be involved with you. Joe, that's very kind. And I I, I feel exactly the same about you. I think uh, Parade Magazine got it exactly right. You are the most important coach in America. The, 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 the deep thought you've given to not just the surface manifestations of the problem but where they're coming from and uh, i just um i'm uh, every time i listen to you i learn something new and i just feel like your work is so incredibly important and we're uh, we in positive coach alliance are really delighted to to help promote that and through this podcast to uh get uh, many many more people to know about your incredible work so thank you Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.